Just a note before we start this episode, you'll hear mention that the commissioners from the Mother and Baby Homes investigation were invited to appear before an Oireachtas committee and we discussed whether or not they will accept that invitation. However, after recording, we received an answer. They have declined for the second time that invitation and there's likely to be more fallout from that decision. But stay listening for the full detail on recent developments. Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, what's next for the Mother and Baby Home Commission and Report? The fallout from the publication of the report of the Mother and Baby Home Commission shows absolutely no sign of letting up. Survivors have long wanted to hear from the commissioners themselves, the authors of the report, but the first public, well, kind of public outing by one of them has led to less comfort and more questions from those same survivors. Since Mary Daly made an appearance at an Oxford seminar, the Taoiseach and Taunish have pressed her and the other commissioners to appear before an Arctis committee to take questions. We've also been able to shed some light, mostly through the work of journalists like our own Orla Ryan at the Journal, on the operations of the commission, mostly around how it operated its two separate committees. And one of the other experts who's been able to pinpoint some of the exact problems and failings of the commission is Katrina Crow. She wrote an absolutely brilliant piece for the Dublin Review and they kindly let us republish it on the journal where you'll find it today. And I'm delighted and excited to welcome Katrina, a renowned archivist, to The Explainer for the first time. And she is joined today by our own Orla Ryan, who, as I said, reported details from that seminar and has been one of the leading journalists on the commission. Thanks both for being here. Firstly, Orla, we have covered the Mother and Baby Home report on The Explainer before, but can you remind our listeners what this report examined and what its headline findings were? So the commission was set up in 2015 to examine the experiences of women and children who lived in 14 mother and baby homes and four county homes between 1922 and 1998. Its long-awaited final report, which was published back in January, confirmed that around 9,000 children died in the 18 institutions under investigation. The report also stated that the Commission found little evidence of forced incarceration, forced adoption or abuse in the institutions. Those findings in particular have been the subject of much criticism in the last few months. A large volume of testimony from survivors contradicts those particular findings, but as Professor Mary Daly confirmed last week, because this evidence wasn't given under oath, it was essentially discounted by the Commission. So as many people have pointed out, the report contradicts itself and the executive summary doesn't match up with the lived experience that people gave to the confidential committee. And we now know that contradiction is because the testimony of over 500 survivors was not taken into account basically when um, the commission was coming to its conclusions because it deemed the confidential committee separate to the investigative committee. And we'll explain that in more detail in a minute, but it just, it discounted hundreds of survivors' testimonies. And that's why there are a lot of contradictions in the final report. Orla, you mentioned there the investigative committee and the confidential committee. Can you just boil it down to basics for our listeners and explain what the two are and the differences, the main differences between them? Yeah, so the commission heard evidence via two committees, as you said. Witnesses who gave evidence to the investigation committee had to swear that the evidence they gave was true and their claims were questioned in a more rigorous manner in a similar way to when a person gives evidence in court. The main purpose of the confidential committee, however, was to listen to the experiences of survivors. And the commission previously stated that this committee may be more suitable for people who wish to have their experiences heard in a sympathetic and confidential atmosphere. The evidence given via this committee was not open to challenge. 
Just 64 survivors gave evidence to the investigation committee, whereas 550 witnesses, mainly survivors and their children, gave evidence via the confidential committee. Just 19 people applied directly to the investigation committee, and it's not clear how the other witnesses were chosen. Yeah, Katrina, a lot of the anger centres around what Orla just described there. Is this a fundamentally flawed report as a result? That is a difficult question to answer, Sinead. In, in ways, yes, it is, because if you leave out the testimony of the vast, huge majority of survivors who came in good faith to give that testimony to the, the commission, assuming, as they did, that this would have a bearing on their conclusions and their findings, that was not the case. They were not made aware of that. So there's a huge problem there, I would think about how we can trust the uh, conclusions and recommendations of the report. So I suppose the two big issues about it are precisely that one about the discounting of the confidential committee testimony and the conclusions which are significantly at odds with some of that testimony. The second thing is what happened to the testimony itself, which the piece I wrote tries to go into in some detail. That again, people came in good faith thinking they were going to have their testimony recorded. As far as we can tell, despite the Commission's uh, assertions to the contrary, people were not told that these tapes were going to be destroyed. There's certainly nothing in the uh, leaflet that was sent to people wishing to speak to the Commission about destroying the tapes, just uh, it it is mentioned that recordings will be made. And from two tapes, one Caroline O'Connor's and the other Noel Brown's that I've had the privilege to listen to, nothing is said at the actual sessions when they're having their testimony recorded. So they assume that the recordings would be preserved. They could also uh, have been expected to assume that whatever went into the confidential committee report would actually reflect what they said themselves. There's a lot of fuss made in, in the report itself about how everything in the confidential committee is in the survivor's own words. It's exactly the opposite, actually. Most of it is paraphrased, and where they do quote survivors very scantily, certainly in the case of Caroline O'Connor's three quotes, which is all she gets for a very vivid piece of written testimony that she gave the confidential committee and her tape recording, one quote is correct, one is completely made up, and one is misquoted and botched, and it's a very serious quote about her mother's suicide attempts. So all of that would point to, it does look as if people didn't listen to the actual tapes that they'd made, which is supposed to be their purpose, made notes as they were listening to the survivors, and in the course of making those notes, misquoted them quite seriously. Now, we know about that for two or three people, but we're not sure about the rest. However, it has to give us pause for serious concern that if that happened in in the cases we know about, what about the rest of them? And is that kind of just on the confidential committee do what do we know about the investigation committee the sections in, of the report dealing with the investigation committee is that fit for purpose as, yes it is in the sense that the, the as as the as the commissioners themselves have said there was a much higher standard of, of proof required uh, for testimony to the judicial arm of the commission which was the investigative committee but a very small number of survivors actually gave evidence as indeed it was evidence to the investigative committee We know that their testimony was properly transcribed and they are quoted much more extensively at the end of each chapter on the institutions under investigation. So in that sense, yes, that they did what they should have done with that testimony. But then you look at the tiny sample involved and you say, how can this reflect 
the lived experience of so many people who wish to speak to the committee. There's also the question that we do not know how the people who spoke to the, the investigative committee were chosen. Um, a lot of people who, who spoke to the confidential committee also asked to speak to the investigative committee and were refused. So how did they pick who was going to talk to the investigative committee? Why did they stay so silent about it? There was nothing on their website to advertise it. Anybody who applied to speak to the commission was automatically referred to the confidential committee. Yeah, can we just go back to kind of the, the setting up of the commission in the first place and the setting up of the two committees? Why were the two committees set up? What was the intention of them being different? And how was that communicated or not to the survivors who were going to appear before the commission? Well, there are two separate questions in the sense that well, the, the committee operates under quite significant and extensive terms of reference, which were drawn up under the Commission of Investigations Act of 2004, which may well be passed its sell-by date at this stage. The commission was asked to create uh, structures and procedures for the investigative committee, how they would proceed with that, very legalistic. They did create such rules and procedures, never put them on their website. They were only given to survivors if they had been chosen to speak to the investigative committee. The CLAN project made many efforts to have them put those, those rules and procedures on the website so people would know what they were. They didn't do that. They seem to have made very little effort to advertise the existence of the investigative committee so that people could come uh, to it. And many did, and as I said, were refused. On the, on the other hand, the confidential committee has quite a lot of material. The terms of reference say a confidential committee shall be established where people can be interviewed as informally as possible to recount their experiences. And a report of a general nature will be written. Uh, but it also says, interestingly, that it's up to the commission to decide whether to include or take into account the testimony given to the confidential committee in coming to their final conclusions. That particular provision has vanished out of the final report when they're describing what the confidential committee is supposed to do. So they obviously made a choice at a certain point that they were not going to take the uh, testimony given to the confidential committee into account. Yeah, you mentioned that you've used the the case of of Caroline O'Connor in your excellent piece in the Dublin Review to kind of highlight some of the the problems with the report and how uh, she was dealt with at the confidential committee. In Caroline's own case, did she know that she was just going to the confidential committee? How did she did she realize the difference between the two, and in what way was it set up to her when she was going in as a survivor? She absolutely did not know that. And there were complaints from the Clan Project as early as 2016 about the fact that survivors they knew who were coming to them had never heard of the investigative committee. They wanted the commission to be more straightforward and clear about the fact that there were two committees. One had a judicial process, the other did not. They didn't do that. So Caroline thought she was going to that commission, which is what I think a lot of people thought. I'm speaking to the commission. I'm going to tell them very important details about my life, very intimate difficult, traumatic in many cases, details. And, and as Caroline herself said at the end of her tape, I wanted this to be part of the record of 20th century Irish history. They took it very, very seriously and did it in good faith, assumed that their recording would be preserved and that, that what they said in that recording would, would have a bearing on the uh, commission's findings. Not alone did it not have a bearing on the commission's findings, as it turned out, but we find that the evidence itself was not even based on those tapes. It was based on notes that were poorly taken in the examples that we know of, and that did not reflect fully the evidence uh, or the, it's not evidence, I keep having to emphasize that because that's an important point, 
the testimony given by people at the Confidential Committee. So it's a double whammy in a way. First of all, the conclusions reached by the uh, Commission when they're released on the 11th of January this year are shocking to survivors because they do not reflect what they know they said to the Commission. And then secondly, as, as they gradually start to ask for transcripts of the material, instead of getting what you would expect, which is a straightforward question and answer transcript from the tape, they get forms with 220 questions on them, which are basically sociological demographic forms about date of birth, um, religious affiliation, work, mental health, all of that kind of stuff. We still don't know what those forms were for or how or in any way were they used with tiny text boxes on those forms where the, the, the writers paraphrase what was said or attempt to do that and choose a number of quotes. And that's what finds its way into the printed report at the end of the day. So that was a huge shock to, to anyone who saw that. The two people I know who did are Annette McKay and Noel Brown, who of course has been a huge activist on, on this matter for many years. And this was a huge shock to them. It looked as if there had been some sort of subterranean exercise going on about which they had not been informed. And again, you're looking at levels of secrecy here. You know, they're not told that their, their, their tapes are going to be destroyed. They're not told that someone is going to be ticking out a bunch of boxes based on what they're saying. So what they thought would be a relatively simple and straightforward process turned out to be far more complicated. And in the process of that complication, misrepresented their evidence. Yeah, you touched on it a little bit there and just I'm conscious of listeners who mightn't have followed um, every nut and bolt of this. And you've said evidence versus testimony and the judicial arm versus the non-judicial arm. So can we just boil it down a little bit? So what exactly was the Investigative Committee there to do and what exactly was the Confidential Committee there to do? The Investigative Committee was there as, as the main commission, if you like, to make findings, to, to do what the terms of reference said it should do to make findings on entrance and exit patterns of women and children into and out of the mother and baby homes, to examine the conditions under which they lived, to examine the whole business of, to a certain extent anyway, a family separation, although that was not really looked at by the, by the commission. They claim it wasn't in their terms of reference and they're probably right about that. And a whole host of other things that you would expect them to be asked to do in terms of, of how these institutions operated over a very long period of time. So the, the evidence that they took into account, that they, they regarded as legal evidence, consisted largely of archival evidence from the congregations themselves, including the really important registers that for, from each institution that tell you who came in, who went out, who died particularly, because of course the, the, the number of uh, infant deaths that were discovered horrified everybody, and various other bits of information depending on the record keeping practices of the congregations in each case. But that's hugely important information because we never saw it before. And uh, the problem is, will we ever see it again? Because the, the records of the religious congregations are private records. We're told that these registers are in the possession of Tusla. They should be in a proper archival repository and be perfectly safe physically. And there is a, a database that's been compiled from them. But again, the gold standard in digitization is to be able to check and see if what you have in your database accurately reflects the origins. I'm not saying it doesn't, but you should be able to do that. So that was what they were at. So the, the religious congregations records, the records of local authorities, the records of the Department of Health and local government, very crucially, the records of GlaxoSmithKline, 
which is the successor to the organizations that carried out the vaccination trials in the late 60s and early 70s, a matter of some concern to um, children, now adults, who were born during that period in the homes where the vaccination trials took place. So all of that stuff gets huge weight uh, in terms of what the, the Commission looks at. And some of these records are compelled under discovery, as they have a right to do as a judicial organisation. They also took evidence from, uh, as well as survivors, from people who worked in the homes and from some of the congregation members, and in some cases from uh, people who inspected the, um, the homes at the time. So all of that is there. The survivors are a small portion of all of that. The, 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 the way we know about this is that there's a chapter on each institution in the report. There are two chapters actually on each institution. One, a narrative chapter on Pellettstown, on Shan Ross, on Bespera, Chewham, all of the, the names that we all, we all know so well now. Uh, a narrative chapter, and then there's a statistical chapter, which is very useful because it break crunches up the numbers, which again we never knew before, and now we can we can see a lot of work went into this, and they, that has to be commended. But interestingly, at the beginning of each chapter, they list the sources that they have consulted in the uh, in the compiling of this chapter, and they list the Department of Local Government, they list the local authorities, they list the congregational records. They do not list the survivors. So that in itself implies a lesser position in terms of evidential value for what survivors were likely to say to them. And again, we have the survivors and others have been calling on the Commission to come out and explain this to us since the report was published and they've declined to do so. So that there are a lot of mysteries around all of this. And it'd be better if speculation didn't flourish as much as it could and we could get actual answers about why these decisions that seem mysterious were taken. Yeah, because we, we know there were 64 survivors who talked to the investigative committee. Can we ascertain anything about them, what schools they went to, what or what institutions they were in, what how representative they were of all the institutions under the remit of the commission? Well, we know that that we know what institutions they were in because their testimony is 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 compiled in the chapters on the various institutions. So of course, these survivors would have been open to cross-examination by anybody they might have named in their testimony um, or by anyone else who felt they had an interest in, in the matter. Are they representative? No, because it's, it's such a small sample. There, there were 550 other people who might have been consulted on the matter and they weren't. That's the big mystery. Why were so few people chosen to come and talk to what the commission itself regarded as the important part of their work? And why was the confidential committee pushed over to the side with the vast amount of testimony that, in fairness, most people were interested in hearing the lived experience of what it was like to be in these institutions, the lived experience of children born there who have had a dreadful time uh, since trying to find birth mothers, birth children and so on, obstructed by church and state, not to mention strange Supreme Court decisions that held everything up for a very long time. So that's what a lot of people would have wanted to see, not a paraphrased version of it, by somebody else. That's a, it's a form of appropriation, as we've now come to know it, when you actually take the words out of people's mouths and replace them with your own, and then quote them wrongly. So that's the problem, that, that the, the, the judicial arm of the commission is okay as far as it goes, in the sense that it gives us a lot of information about who went in, who came out, what the numbers were, how many children died, a lot of very useful stuff about conditions in the, the mother and baby homes and the county homes. 
many, many useful chapters on all of that. The problem is that on the other side of that door, if you like, are 550 people who think that their testimony is also going to be taken into account. And it wasn't. Yeah, this was something that came up, Orla, in uh, Professor Mary Daly's uh, seminar, the seminar she gave in uh, Oxford last week, which is obviously kind of you know, kicked off this conversation even further. You were at that seminar. Can you take us through what she had said in it and basically what the what the talk was like as well? Yeah, so last week's event was quite unusual in a lot of ways. It was originally meant to just be open to students and staff at Oxford University. However, the presence of one of the commissioners obviously piqued people's interest when they saw that she would be speaking at it. Because, as we've said, none of the three commissioners have commented publicly on the report since January. Um, The seminar was originally planned way back in January when the final report came out, but it wasn't widely publicised because it was in-house. And then last week, the day before the event, Women's History Association of Ireland tweeted that it was happening and it prompted a flurry of people trying to register, myself included. A lot of people were able to register, a lot of others were not. Either way, it was a Zoom event and the link was being widely passed around because survivors, journalists, politicians all saw this as possibly the only chance that they will get to hear from a commissioner and maybe ask her questions. So it wasn't, you know, the ideal place to put certain questions to Mary Daly, but it was the only opportunity survivors and journalists had been given, even if it happened in a, a roundabout way. So the seminar itself was quite peculiar. Um, All of the viewers were muted, but we could type questions into the chat box and a small number of those were put directly to Professor Daly. You know, people necessarily weren't happy with a lot of the answers she gave. Um, She repeatedly spoke about the the looming legal threats and how that impacted the Commission's work. Um, Notably, it was the looming legal threat from religious orders, not the women themselves. And a number of women are now... Um, taking legal action, but she she crucially said, as we've mentioned, that the testimonies given to the confidential committee, so over 500 people, the majority of them mothers and children, that they were just deemed not legally robust because the evidence was not given under oath or cross-examined. And at one point, she said the evidence from the confidential committee and the investigative committee shouldn't have been included in the same commission because, quote, they are very, very different exercises, which kind of begs the question, why wasn't this raised earlier or to a greater degree five years ago rather than after the fact? Daly did acknowledge that there was some confusion about the two separate committees. She noted that she spoke to her colleagues while they were working on the commission um, to see how they could have integrated the confidential committee into the report. But, quote, it would have taken hundreds of hours of cross-checking rereading against the other evidence available from registers and so on. Then maybe interrogation and then maybe working out how to integrate the two. So people were quite annoyed by this. You know, people have already waited years for the report and decades in general for answers. So to kind of hear her say, oh, would it have taken too long? you know, for us to do a more thorough job, people were were really not happy with that answer. During the conversation, she also referred to people's testimony as stories multiple times. And survivors found this very insulting. I spoke to one woman yesterday who said, why are the nuns facts or the, the religious orders evidence treated as fact and our evidence is stories? 
So people were were very annoyed by a lot of the commentary there. And there was one, you know, there was engagement with one woman who wanted to know the location of her brother's death cert. And Mary Daly seemingly knew this woman or knew of her and, you know, kind of made a comment of, well, like you had your chance to talk to the commission and you didn't. And then the woman was responding in the chat box and it was some back and forth. And at one point, one of the organizers suggested unmuting this woman. And a lot of people in the chat box were saying, yes, she has a right to reply. And then another organizer said, actually, we can't unmute her. So then there was confusion as to whether or not they could or couldn't unmute her or whether or not they didn't want to unmute her because it, it could have led to whatever, a verbal fight as opposed to kind of one woman talking and one woman in the chat box. But it was just, yeah, very strange in that times adversarial seminar. And a lot of people have pointed out that perhaps because of the setting, even though Mary Daly knew there was journalists and survivors on the call, obviously, that maybe she felt more comfortable to speak in maybe a less formal manner or acknowledge certain things that she wouldn't have done had it not been a history seminar at Oxford, had it been an Oireachtas committee, for example. But obviously, because she and others have declined that invitation, this was the only chance to ask her questions. So people did and people were not necessarily happy with those answers, but they took their opportunity to ask some questions. So a fresh uh, invite has gone um, to the commissioners from the Oireachtas Committee, um, but there's no onus on the commissioners to actually turn up. What's the next step for th- for that committee? I suppose they wait. <laughs> I spoke to committee chair Kathleen Function just before the podcast, and as of today, there has been no response from the commissioners. So it's not looking good. Um, the reissued invitation last Friday, but for the day of the 17th of June, which is next week, And the fact that they haven't heard anything in the last six days indicates that they may not hear anything. So I suppose it's a wait and see approach. Um, While there is no legal obligation and and the Eurocopist can't compel the commissioners or anyone to come in or or give them documents, a lot of politicians and, and survivors have pointed out that there's a moral obligation to answer questions. So, yes, they don't have to come in, but they probably should. Kathleen has said that. They will facilitate another date. The commission or the committee will facilitate another date if next week doesn't suit, but they haven't heard anything back. So, as you mentioned at the, the top of the show, um, the Taoiseach and Tanish have both called for the commissioners to come in. So they're probably the, the highest ranking politicians to date to call for it. But again, the commissioners are under no obligation, so they may never appear before the Oireachtas. Katrina, how important is it for the report's authors to appear before an appropriate forum to take questions? And should that forum be an Oireachtas committee or is there somewhere better? It's incredibly unusual to have a situation where a report of this magnitude is launched and the authors of it do not launch it, don't give a press conference. When Sean Ryan launched the uh, report into industrial schools, he gave a press conference. He answered questions from journalists, some survivors, and did further, uh, one or two further public events afterwards. In other words, he owned his own report. The mystery here is why did these three people who who put five years work into this report and many others who worked with them, who must be very perturbed by what's going on now. As far as I know, everyone who worked for the commission had to sign a non-disclosure agreement, which is why very likely why we haven't heard from any of them. But it'd be interesting if one of them decided to come forward and try to shed some light on, on these mysteries that we can't get answers to. The Oireachtas Committee are perfectly right to, to, to keep issuing invitations, but it may not be the best forum. If I were the commissioners and I want to do the right thing, as opposed to stay in hiding, 
from this. I would organize an event myself. I'd get somebody relatively neutral to moderate it and invite people to come along and do it. Do it online if necessary, given the present COVID um, restrictions. It would be unpleasant and difficult for them, but it is still the right thing to do. And I, I would urge them, even at this late stage, to consider, even if they don't like the, the prospect of an Arachnus Committee. And Arachnus Committees, by the way, are not distinguished usually by their lack of grandstanding and their in political foregrounding for the members of it. They're not necessarily disinterested participants in something like this. So I would understand some people's fears about, about going in front of them. I still think it's very well-intentioned of this committee to be constantly keeping the pressure on for them to come. So they should do something. Who knows what that might be? There, there are easier ways than an Oireachtas committee, I would imagine. Uh, I don't think they will. But if they, can't, if they feel they can't, could they appoint a spokesperson of some sort? to come out and answer the questions. It's really not fair to survivors to, to have to go through all of this for such a long time, having waited five years in hope, expectation, and some uh, apprehension, uh, what they get really shocked them. There was a, a report produced in Northern Ireland not long after our one. It's an academic report, it deals with far fewer people. But its process and its framework and its methodology, a word that is missing from our Mother and Baby Homes Commission, they do not give us a methodology. Very dangerous not to do that because a methodology keeps you honest and you have to explain how you're going to do what you do. But the methodology for the Northern Report was absolutely survivor-centered. People were trained in dealing with those who had suffered trauma. They were respect respectfully treated. Their evidence was transcribed for them and given to them the next day. When it came to editing the report, they were consulted fully as to what would go into the report and what would not. That's the way to do these things. I just don't know. I mean, my feeling now is that, that if the government can, and I think they can, they should repudiate certainly certain parts of this report, particularly the conclusions, which are not backed up by the evidence given in the Confidential Committee uh, testimony. Um, they, Roger Gorman has already repudiated one of their recommendations, which is that nobody who went in to a home after 1973 should get any redress. I mean, that's ridiculous. 1973 is the year that the Unmarried Mother's Allowance comes into being, but hardly anybody knew about it for quite a long time afterwards. So he's already said he's not going to observe that, which means you can do that. The, the interesting and good work done by the, the, the commission in terms of all that number crunching, uh, patterns of, of what was going on in the various places, all that remains in the public domain as does the social history uh, con contextual chapters, some of which are very good. Uh, all of that is there. That can be used by anyone in the future who wants to research any of this or to find out more about what went on. But it's really, it's the conclusions, the recommendations, and the confidential committee that are the big issue. And I think between the three of them, they really do make this a very difficult report to be allowed to stand as the final official word on what happened in mother and baby. Yeah, and Orla, a lot of them have have seen the courts as probably the only way forward for them and have taken legal action as a result. Can you talk us through what we know about those cases so far? Yeah, so a number of high-profile survivors, including Philomena Lee, Mary Harney and Mary Steed, are among those who have started legal proceedings in the last couple of months. Lee, for example, does not agree with a number of the report findings um, including the fact that, you know, it states the responsibility for the 
quote unquote harsh treatment suffered by the women in question rests mainly with the fathers of their children and their own families. That was another bone of contention. You know, people were saying the report didn't really go into the the fact that, you know, the the role of the church and state really was putting a lot of personal responsibility onto to families and fathers. And, you know, while they did play a role, it was also the case in many, in many cases, you know, that some of the fathers wanted to be involved. They wanted to keep their children and they had no choice. Lee also takes issue with the commission's findings that there was a lack of evidence about forced adoptions and things like pain relief not being administered during childbirth. So she and a number of other women are seeking to have a judicial review and for for some of those findings to be quashed. So they have taken cases against the Minister for Children, the government and the Attorney General. Um, Another one of the cases has been taken by Mary Steed, who was born in Bessborough, mother and baby home. And she's a a well-known adoption rights activist. She's seeking to quash the findings that there was no evidence any uh, child was harmed by vaccine trials carried out at the institutions. So there's there's several different women. There's about eight so far have started legal proceedings. Um, Some have chosen to, to remain anonymous and others have gone public. And there could well be more legal action taken in the coming months. Is there any other way of fixing some of, some of the problems that you have so well outlined, Katrina, in this? Is there precedent for not letting reports stand, as you mentioned earlier? Like, how does the government go about dealing with this in the best possible way? Well, in recent times, the Kerry Babies report, which should have been repudiated the day it was published, actually, it was, it was, it was bizarre, surreal. Um, that, after 30 years, was finally rejected. That doesn't stand as as the final word. What concerns survivors is that this will remain the official final word on these matters, and they do not see that that can stand. I think, you know, it is wonderful that despite the Commission's decision to destroy the original tapes of interviews with, with people who came to the Confidential Committee, the backup tapes have survived, and subject access requests from um, survivors are now resulting in those tapes being sent to them. So at least those are there. Uh, the right thing to do would be to make an archive out of that extraordinary cohort of really valuable information, consult the survivors absolutely on the matter. They need to be consulted on this. There will be people who do not want their tape preserved or their testimony preserved or to be identified in any way. That has to be acknowledged and honoured. If they were given that guarantee and they, they, even if they weren't, if that's what they want, it shouldn't happen. They shouldn't have their testimony on the record in any way. But a large number of survivors would like to have their testimony uh, kept. Some might like them to be closed for a number of years. Some may wish them to be open straight away. A number of survivors want to use this material uh, in schools, you know, to to bring to the attention of our young men and women what went on in this country not so long ago. So that is a possibility. There is talk about an archive for institutions to be cited in the old Sean McDermott Street Magdalene Laundry. Now, let's remember there's 11 million euros left from the budget for the commission. They only spent half their money. So while Mary Daly may say it would have taken hundreds of hours, they had the money to do it if they wanted to, to go through all of that stuff. So I don't think that really stands up. That would be one thing they could do. They can repudiate the the, the findings uh, and recommendations of the commission. Some of the, 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 the recommendations are very good. For example, that people should have a right to their own identity. Uh, because, of course, many of the people who came to the, the commission were talking about having been born in a mother and baby home and finding later that they were obstructed for years in trying to get access to their own identity. We've been saved by the loathed GDPR, which everyone has been giving out about for years. And that 
uh, fortunately, allows a right, an absolute right to citizens to information about their own identity. That has given the minister the opportunity to bring forward an adoption tracing bill that we're all hoping is going to allow that to happen and for the first time give people a legal right to see their own identity information, which should be a basic human right. And the commission, in fairness, recommends that. So some recommendations are already being acted on. Uh, others have been already repudiated, if you like, by the, the minister. The 1973 one, for example. They could do those things uh, and set up another different commission of inquiry into adoption, fosterage, boarding out, children who were sent to industrial schools from mother and baby homes, the whole issue of family separation and how it operated in Ireland for a very long time. And allied to that, the obstruction put in the way of survivors in finding details of their own identity that were crucial to them. That could be done. And that could be a human rights focused, less judicial approach to the matter, where again, survivors are treated respectfully and consulted about what is going on. None of this is rocket science. It can be done. Um, so there are a number of options that the government has. Obviously, people refer to the chilling, possible chilling effect on further commissions of investigation that people wouldn't be very quick to sign up for them. I doubt that. I think many uh, eminent individuals would be very happy to participate in further commissions of inquiry if they felt that they were going to be able to do it in, in a way that respects the people most badly affected by whatever it may be. One of the things we have to keep our minds focused on is the existential enormity of what happened to the women and children in these places. And also the fact that we would never have had a commission of inquiry if it hadn't been for the courage and persistence of survivors in continuing for years to ask for such a commission of inquiry. It is very, very sad that when, after waiting five years for the, this report to issue, that they find themselves not to be properly represented in it and to, to see findings that contradict their own lived experience. Yeah, that, that they wanted this historical record and they're still living this right now, whereas we're hearing now, we're seeing an attitude maybe from commissioners that treated this as a as a different type of exercise altogether from what the survivors wanted and needed. Orla and Katrina, thanks so much for coming into The Explainer and uh, just talking us through everything that has happened in the last few weeks. And I'm sure we'll be talking to you both again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Katrina and Orla for joining us. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Aoife Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you want to support The Explainer, there's a few things you can do. Head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber. But you could also leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a great way to make sure other people will discover it, listen and love it too. Thank you and catch you next time.